I am Dr. Pengxian Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of High Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which covers the August 2018 issue of High Rhythm. The featured article this month is titled Posterior Wall Isolation Using the Cryer Balloon in Conjunction with Pulmonary Vein Ablation is Superior to Pulmonary Vein Isolation Alone in Patients with Persistent Atrial Fibrillation a multi-center experience. This article was authored by Ariana et al. from Mercy General Hospital, Sacramento, California. An author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Mooring, can be found at the www.hotrhythmjournal.com website. The authors examined the long-term outcomes in 380 consecutive patients with persistent atrial fibrillation who underwent a first-time cryo-balloon ablation procedure using PVI alone or PVI in conjunction of posterior wall isolation. The authors found that PVI and posterior wall isolation can be achieved safely and effectively using the cryo-balloon. It is associated with higher AF termination and lower incidence of recurrent atrial arrhythmias. The authors conclude that PVI plus posterior wall isolation appears superior to PVI alone in patients with persistent AF. While the study is not a prospective randomized trial, it provided new information on posterior wall isolation using cryo-balloon. A prospective randomized trial is needed to confirm these conclusions. A second article is role of NT-pro-AMP and NT-pro-BMP in patients with atrial fibrillation, association with atrial fibrillation progression phenotypes by Butler et al. from Leipzig University, Leipzig, Germany. The progression of AF is often characterized by a switch from paroxysmal to persistent AF and by increased left atrial diameter. Another important variable associated with AF progression patterns and severity stage is periprocedural evidence of low voltage areas identified during sinus rhythm representing advanced remodeling processes in the left atrium. The authors found NT-pro-AMP, but not NT-pro-BMP levels, were significantly higher in patients with low voltage areas. NT-pro-AMP levels increased according to four disease progression groups. It is the lowest in paroxysmal AF without low voltage areas, and become progressively higher in persistent AF without low voltage areas, paroxysmal AF with low voltage areas, and persistent AF with low voltage areas. NT-pro-AMP and NT-pro-BMP are expressed by cardiomyocytes, but AMP expression is highest in the atria, while BMP expression is higher in the left ventricle. The authors found that only AM pro AMP is a specific biomarker for AF progression. 
These findings may help refine individualized therapy in patients with AF to predict or prevent AF progression. Next up is ablation strategies for the management of symptomatic Bugatta syndrome, a systematic review by Fernandes et al. from University of Miami. The authors systematically reviewed 11 case series and 11 case reports, including a total of 233 patients. Ablation strategies in a majority of patients included epicardial mapping with substrate modification, which was associated with 96% success rate in preventing VTVF during a 2.5 to 78 months follow-up period. The other strategies, such as endocardial ablation and triggered premature ventricular complex ablation, were less successful. The authors concluded that epicardial substrate modification appears to be more effective than endocardial-only approach in preventing VTVF. Ablation seems to be an acceptable strategy for patients with Brugada syndrome and VTVF. This is a nice summary of existence of existing literature. The high success rate of epicardial substrate modification suggests that some patients are cured, thus do not need ICD implantation. This can be tested in future prospective clinical trials. The next paper is right atrial dual-loop reentrant tachycardia after cardiac surgery, prevalence, electrophysiological characteristics, and ablation outcomes by Yang et al. from Fuwai Hospital, Beijing, China. The authors identified all patients with atrial tachycardia after cardiac surgery. Of the 127 patients with 152 post-surgical atrial tachycardias, 18% had RA dual-loop re-entry and 86% had triggered annular re-entry combined with free wall incident, uh, incisional re-entry. In incision lengths of greater than 51.5 mm along the free wall predicted the substrate for a second loop. Ablation was successful in about 90% of the patients. The authors conclude that RA dual-loop re-entry accounted for 18% of atrial tachycardias with prior atriotomy scar, and long incision should alert physicians to the possibility of a second loop at the free wall. In these patients, complete mapping of the entire RA will be needed to successfully identify and ablate the reentrant arrhythmias. Next paper is high density mapping and ablation of concealed low voltage activity within pulmonary vein ultra, resulting in improved freedom from atrial fibrillation compared to pulmonary vein isolation alone, by Sigerson et al. from Harrison Medical Center, Bremerton, Washington. The authors concluded, uh, conducted a case control study comparing 150 patients undergoing high-density guided PVI and the subsequently concealed low-voltage signal mapping and ablation against 452 historical controls undergoing traditional PVI alone. PVI was similarly performed 
and confirmed in both groups. The authors found that concealed low-voltage signals are commonly identified with high-density mapping after PVI, likely representing vulnerabilities in ultra-region sets. Ablation of these targets seems to significantly improve freedom from AF compared to PVI alone. This study represents the concept of residual low-voltage propagation within the PV ultra after PVI is achieved. These residual low-voltage propagation could lead to future reconnection. Therefore, the use of high-density mapping to identify those low-voltage propagation could potentially improve the success, uh, success rate of PVI for atrial fibrillation. The title of the next article is Early Feasibility of Hypoglossal Nerve Upper Airway Stimulator in Patients with Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices and Continuous Positive Airway Pressure Intolerant Severe Obstructive Sleep Apnea by Parikh et al. from Kansas University Medical Center, Kansas. Implantable hypoglossal nerve upper airway stimulation is a new method to manage obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, in patients intolerant to CPAP therapy. The authors retrospectively studied 14 patients who also had cardiac implantable electronic devices, or CIEDs. All the hypoglossal nerve stimulation devices were implanted on the opposite side of the CIED. No oversensing episodes were noted on the CIED. These findings suggest that simultaneous use of a novel hypoglossal nerve upper airway stimulation device with transverse CIEDs does not result in device-device interactions. Because many patients with OSA also have cardiac arrhythmias, these findings are reassuring. Jason et al. from University Hospital of Strasbourg, France, authored the next paper titled Ventricular Arrhythmias and Sudden Cardiac Arrest in Takotsubo Cardiomyopathy, Instance, Predictive Factors and Clinical Implications. They studied 214 consecutive cases of Takotsubo cardiomyopathy over eight years. Life-threatening arrhythmias occurred in 10.7% of patients and were associated with lower left ventricular ejection fraction and a QRS duration of greater than 105 milliseconds. These arrhythmias were associated with significantly increased mortality. Ventricular arrhythmias occurred in the acute phase without further recurrence recorded in hospital survivors, whereas severe conduction disorders persisted during long-term follow-up. These findings may have implications on the choice of device therapy for this specific subgroup of patients. Next up is copy number variations of SCM5A in Bugatta syndrome by Sonoda et al. from Niigata University, Niigata, Japan. The authors studied 151 Brugada syndrome probands and identified pathogenic SCM5 mutations in 20. Four programs were found to present different copy 
uh, number of variations. Three of them had a fatal arrhythmic events. The remaining one was asymptomatic but had a family history. Of the baseline 12 lead electrocardiograms showed PQ interval prolongation. The characteristics of these four probands with copy number variations were similar to those of the probands with mutations leading to premature truncation uh, of the protein or missense mutations causing pe uh, peak RNA reduction of greater than 90%. The authors conclude that they have identified SCM5A copy number variations in 2.9% of Bugatti syndrome probands. Copy number variation is a type of duplication or deletion event that affects a considerable number of base pairs in the DNA sequence. Before this paper, there has been only occasional case reports of copy number variations in Bugatti syndrome. This paper is important because the authors showed copy number variations not the, that rare among the probands of Bugatti syndrome. It can be associated with significant loss of sodium current causing severe arrhythmia phenotypes. The next article is visualization of acute edema in the left atrial myocardium after radiofrequency ablation. Application of a novel high-resolution three-dimensional magnetic resonance imaging sequence. This article was written by Zeit et al. from the Johns Hopkins University to report a new MRI technique that can better visualize edema in a thin-walled left atrium. They first sought to optimize and validate a high-resolution T2-weighted imaging technique called SPACE, S-P-A-C-E, with comparison to the standard conventional dark blood turbospin echo, or DBTSE sequences. They then apply these methods to study 14 AF patients. Results show that signal-to-noise ratio and the contrast-to-noise ratio were higher on space versus dbTSE. The authors conclude that T2 space can be used to map the extent of acute post-ablation edema in the thin LA myocardium with improved resolution and lower artifact compared to traditional dbTSE. The LA has a thin wall. Uh, current available technology does not allow the electrophysiologist to distinguish sites of tissue necrosis from areas of edema. These new techniques have the potential to accurately assess the composition of ablated tissue acutely after lesion placement with the goal of detecting gaps in the ablation patterns. Next up is influence of contact force on voltage mapping. A combined magnetic resonance imaging and electroanatomic mapping study in patients with tetralogy of a load by Tajira uh, Fernandez et al. from Bordeaux, France. They studied 14 patients with re uh, repaired tetralogy of a load, underwent high resolution cardiac MRI. SCAR was mapped over the RV geometry and merged within the cartel system to RV endocardial voltage maps. In total, 
2,446 points were analyzed, 915 within scars and 1,531 in healthy tissue according to MRI. Contact force correlated to unipolar and bipolar voltage in both healthy tissue and in scar tissue. If good contact force is applied, unipolar and bipolar voltage cut cutoffs of 5.19 millivolt and 1.76 millivolts respectively are optimal for identifying RV scar on endocardial mapping. Because contact force casters are increasingly being used for ablation, these values might be useful for scar detection. However, a limitation is that these values may vary according to different factors. Specific cutoff values with different diagnostic accuracy may exist for each caster under different circumstances. Trong et al. from Cornell College of Medicine, New York, wrote the next paper entitled Utility of Dual-Source Computed Tomography in Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, Direct Study. In this prospective study, 54 patients scheduled for CRT underwent pre-procedural CT to assess their venous anatomy as well as CT-derived desynchrony metrics and myocardial scar. Based on one-to-one -one randomization, the implanting physician had pre-implant knowledge of the venous anatomy in half of the patients. Results showed that there were 72% CRT responders and 17% with major adverse cardiac events, or MACE. Global wall motion and opposing anteroceptal infralateral wall motion predicted MACE. Lead location non-concordant to regions of maximal wall thickness was associated with less MACE. Pre-knowledge of coronary venous anatomy by CT did not reduce implant or fluoroscopy time. The authors conclude that two CT desynchrony metrics predicted two-year MACE and LV lead location concordant to regions of maximal wall thickness was associated with less MACE. However, other CT factors had little utility in CRT. It is interesting to note that the pre-knowledge of coronary venous anatomy did not make CRT implant any easier. The value of high-definition CT before CRT implantation remains unproven. Next up is antiarrhythmic effects of vagal nerve stimulation after cardiac sympathetic denervation in the setting of chronic myocardial infarction by Yamaguchi et al. from UCLA. This is an experimental study using canine and pig models. Cardiac sympathetic denervation included bilateral stelectomy and T2 to T4 thoracic ganglia removal. Electrophysiological and hemodynamic parameters were evaluated before and during intermittent VNS pre-cardiac sympathetic denervation or CSD as well as post-CSD. They found that vagal nerve stimulation increased the global activation recovery interval, which tracks the action potential duration. VT was inducible in all infarcted animals after CSD during isoproteranol infusion. 
this inducibility was reduced by 67% with vagal nerve stimulation. The authors conclude that after cardiac sympathetic denervation, the beneficial electrophysiological effects of vagal nerve stimulation remain. There is a role for additional parasympathetic modulation in the treatment of ventricular arrhythmias after sympathetic denervation. A limitation of the study is that VT was induced by extra stimulus and not, did not occur spontaneously. In spite of uh, these limitations, these findings suggest that further studies may be needed to document the effects of vagal nerve stimulation on arrhythmia control. The next paper is Long QT syndrome type 5 light, defining the clinical phenotype associated with potentially pro-arrhythmic common genetic variant. This paper was written by Lane et al. from Mayo Clinic. The common variant is KCNE1 protein change, aspartic acid to asparagine at location 85, or KCNE1 D85N. Retrospective review was used to compare demographics, symptomatology, and QT parameters of individuals with that KCNE1 variant in the absence of other rare or ultra-rare variants in long QT syndrome susceptibility genes. They found that variant was more prevalent in individuals undergoing long QT genetic testing. It was associated with female patients with, long QT, uh, with QT prolongation, but those patients are less likely to be symptomatic, treated with beta blockers or ICDs. The authors conclude that they provide further evidence that relatively common variants in KCNE1 may result in a mild QT phenotype designated as long QT5 light to distinguish such potentially pro-arrhythmic common variants, that is, functional risk alleles, from rare pathogenic variants that truly confer monogenic disease susceptibility albeit with incomplete penetrance. This article taught us that common variants can modulate congenital long QT syndrome penetrance and may contribute to exaggerated responses to QT prolonging drugs. D. Santiago et al. from Rush University, Chicago, wrote the next paper titled Loss of P21 Activated Kinase 1, PAC1, promotes atrial proarrhythmic activity. The authors noted that angiotensin II has been implicated in the initiation and maintenance of atrial fibrillation through changes in calcium handling and the production of reactive oxygen species. Therefore, they aim to determine the role of P21 activated kinase 1 or PAC1, a downstream target in the angiotensin II signaling cascade in atrial electrophysiology and arrhythmia. They studied both wild-type and PAC1 knockout mice and showed that reduced PAC1 activity increases the inducibility of atrial arrhythmia in vivo and in vitro. Upon stimulation with angiotensin II, PAC1 knockout atrial myocytes exhibit an exaggerated increase in the intracellular calcium concentration 
and arrhythmic events that were sensitive to sodium calcium exchanger inhibitors. The experimental results support that PAC1 stimulation can attenuate NCX-dependent calcium overload and prevent triggered arrhythmia activity by suppressing NOx2-dependent reactive oxygen species production. These findings suggest that PAC1 can potentially be a useful antiarrhythmic target. The limitation is the use of mice model, which does not have the same electrophysiological characteristics as the humans. Next up is titled Antiarrhythmic Effects of Stimulating the Left Dorsal Branch of the Thoracic Nerve in a Canine Model of Paroxysmal Atrial Tachyarrhythmias by Zhao et al. from my laboratory at Indiana University. We performed chronic stimulation of the left dorsal branch of the thoracic nerve in ambulatory dogs with intermittent rapid left atrial pacing. Previous studies show that rapid LA pacing causes electrical remodeling, which induces spontaneous arrhythmias. However, in dogs with chronic nerve stimulation, there were no spontaneous arrhythmias induced. Both left static ganglion and the right static ganglion were damaged by the stimulation, along with reduced left static ganglion nerve activity. These findings suggest that subcutaneous nerve stimulation in the thoracic region could potentially be useful for atrial arrhythmia control. The limitation is that this canine model of atrial arrhythmia may not fully reproduce the pathophysiology of the human arrhythmias. Bradford of UCLA wrote a review article entitled Mechanisms and Management of Refractory Ventricular Arrhythmias in the Age of Autonomic Modulation. The authors felt that the interventions specific to the cardiac neuronal axis have been largely underutilized. This underutilization has been most pronounced in patients with structural heart disease. However, there is a growing body of literature on the pathophysiology and the physiology of cardiac neural control and the benefits of neuromodulation to treat refractory ventricular arrhythmias in these patients. In this paper, the authors also presented case-based examples of neuromodulatory interventions currently available and the review of the literature supporting their use. Next up is another review article entitled The Diagnosis and Management of Short QT Syndrome by Birigard from St. Louis University, Missouri. The author summarized the genetic basis of the short QT syndrome and its clinical presentation. The author also discussed the use of ICDs and drugs in the management of short QT syndrome. Enrique Settle from University of Pennsylvania wrote a hands-on article entitled How to Map and Ablate Parahitian Ventricular Arrhythmias. The authors went over anatomical features and provided practical guidance to the mapping and ablation of these arrhythmias. In addition to the above articles, this month of the journal also publishes a Josephson and Willens ECG lesson titled A Narrow QRS Tachycardia Showing Ventricular Atrial Conduction Lengthening During Caster Ablation. An image showing bilateral tachycardia utilizing Bachmann, uh, Bachmann Bundle and four EP News articles. 
I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Hard Rhythm, I'm editor in chief, Dr. Pinchen Chin.